And we're back with the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in to today's episode. This is episode 211. Episode 211. I'm your host, Josh Schultz, and my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, uh, it's been an interesting couple of weeks. I think uh, we have a special episode today. Yeah, it's been a, it has been. Uh, it's good to see you actually back at work for once. It's nice. Uh, we had to replace you last week, but we, we made it through. And yeah, we do. We do we actually start off the show with the guest. Okay, and so we have on the man, the myth, the legend himself, the one, the only, Anas Alhaji. Anas is always putting out great content on Twitter. Uh, you need to go follow me if you're not. And he put out um, some fantastic tweets, and I thought, you know, it'd be great if we could get him on the show. He was so generous to come on with us on short notice because he is that kind of a guy. Anas, it's good to have you on again. How are you doing today, sir? Thank you. Good morning, all. Okay, so the, the, the tweet that I'm looking at that you have uh, slides prepared will link to YouTube on the show notes so people go watch this. Uh, the tweet is, between 2000 and 2020, only one country among the large oil-producing countries doubled its production. Name that country. The poll results say the U.S. is 52% at number one. The UAE come at number two at 22%. Iraq at 15% was number three. And then the Canucks at 10%. What is the right answer, Anas? Well, the right answer is Canada, which we got the least, got only 10%. Really? Almost. Yes. Uh, Canada was able to double its production despite all the bad reputation about its government intervention and the carbon tax and all that stuff. Uh, Canada was able to double its production. But let's remember that we are talking about percentages here. We are talking about doubling. We are not talking about the amount. We'll talk about the amount in, in a few minutes. Um, I am working on a project and, and this is kind of a side note of, uh, uh, of this uh, project related to the outlook for the oil and gas market. And uh, if you uh, look at the data, and I did this chart, which is kind of very uh, uh, interesting. This chart, basically, I indexed the uh, production of the largest uh, 12 uh, oil producing countries. So year 2000, basically, as you can see, we have the 100. So this is just an index. And anything above 100 is an increase in production. Anything below 100 is a decrease in production. And the results are striking. Of course, this is most of the world production anyway, if you look at it. Um, if you look at uh, what at the point at 100 in 2000, and you look at Canada, Canada in 2020 is at 200, which means that is double its production. And it's the only country that was able to double its production among the largest oil producing countries. Now, the US in 2019 more than doubled its production. But of course, because of the impact of the coronavirus and the shut-ins and the negative prices in uh, uh, April 2020, uh, we've seen this reduction. So it brought it below uh, the doubling point, but it's still, very massive increase. So this chart shows you which countries increases production, which countries uh, basically suffered from a decline in production. And you can see that Russia was able to increase production, but the Russians did it early. Uh, in the last 10 years, we saw the largest increase in North America and Canada, US, but we also saw the large increase in uh, Iraq, which is this green, uh, green line here. So you can see Russia here. This is the green line is uh, Iraq. 
And we've seen some increase from uh, the Gulf states, uh, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, uh, Kuwait. Uh, I did not add Qatar to this uh, uh, chart, but Qatar did increase its production by about 51,000 barrels a day. And uh, uh, Oman did increase uh, its production by uh, almost the same amount. So we have seen increase from the Gulf states throughout uh, this period, but it's a limited increase relative to the uh, increases of others. The most interesting part basically is the decline. As I said, anything below 100 is decline. And you can see where Venezuela basically just went downhill, okay? And one of the sad stories about Venezuela is, Venezuela's production today is only 17% of where it was in 2000. Only 17%. We've seen a reduction in the production of Norway, mostly because of uh, geology. But uh, if you look at uh, Norway, we've seen this recent increase in 2020. This is where they brought in this massive uh, oil field online. There is another one coming in. So Norway might recover its production, but that's it. Uh, and then we've uh, seen the decline in Mexico. And th this is going to go nowhere. I'll discuss that in a minute. But we've seen basically Norway, Mexico, uh, uh, and Venezuela. Uh, we also seen some decline in uh, China, which is very important because if uh, Chinese production declines, that means their imports is going to be higher. And the more it declines, the higher the imports. Again, this chart shows the, the kind of the production in a relative sense. But let's look at the numbers themselves, because this is kind of really what matters at the end. This chart here, if you look at the bottom, it shows anything to the right of that vertical line, it shows the increase. Anything to the left of it, it shows the decrease. It's the same 12 countries, just now, and instead of talking about the relative sense, we are talking about numbers. And if you look at the US, the US added about 5.88 uh, million barrels a day in the last 10 years. This is only between 2010 and 20, 2020. In the last 10 years, added about 5.88. Um, we have to remember that because of the high decline rates in the shale wells, the gross addition is huge. It's, it's above uh, uh, 7.3 million barrels a day, which is very important because that's almost equivalent to the production of Kuwait and the UAE together. And both of them are large producers in the Middle East and both of them are OPEC members. And this is only the shale. So you can see what the shale revolution did. So we have this massive increase in the US, about 5.88. Uh, followed by Iraq and Canada, the addition is almost uh, uh, virtually the same. It's about 1.6 million each. Then we've seen addition, additions in the Gulf states, that's Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Kuwait. As I mentioned, uh, uh, Qatar and Oman added too, but their amount is small. Now look at the declines. You can see that the largest decline came from Venezuela, followed by Iran, Mexico, China, Norway. The Russian Federation production was virtually flat. And this has implications that we'll talk about in a minute. But if you look at Venezuela, so just to, to clear it for people who are confused about Venezuela, they, they don't know much about Venezuela. This is not only the sanctions that the US imposed. 
This has been going on for a very long time. And let's remember that in 2002, during the labor strike at PDVSA, uh, what Chavez did, basically, he fired them. He fired massive number of people and replaced them by people who are not qualified from his own party, from his own group. And it's downhill from there. Uh, and then the U.S. sanctions that the Trump imposed basically made it harder for them because they cannot export to the United States and they cannot um, uh, import C5, which is the natural gasoline, to blend with their heavy crude. Uh, so that has uh, an impact. Iran is mostly because of the sanctions. So you can see the impact of sanctions over time. And this is mostly because international oil companies are fearful in being there. That's what it is. Uh, Mexico is mostly about geology, but uh, we cannot forget about the institutional framework and the corruption. Uh, China is mostly geology. Uh, Norway is mostly geology, but again, Norway is recovering right now. Uh, as for the Russians, well, um, I've seen the Russians maxed out for now, and uh, anything that's going to come from the Arctic, uh, of course, is a function of price but it's mostly will compensate for the decline. And I will talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes. But here, here is the point. Um, the net increase, if you, if you take the net of those declines and those increases, uh, the net increase is about 6 million barrels a day, which is almost the 6 million that the US added, which is, by the way, equivalent to the spare, the effective spare capacity that exists today. So number six basically plays a big role here. When I talk about the effective spare capacity, I'm talking about what we can bring online quickly within 90 days and we can sustain it. Now, the spare capacity is way larger than six, but that's really what it is. So what that means is in a sense, it means that imagine if we did not have the share revolution, if we don't have the share revolution, then we are going to lose 6 million. So that addition would not have happened, that net addition. And with it, basically, uh, based on uh, my, uh, the project I'm working on, we would have 2007, 2008 repeated again right now. Prices would have been in 150 range and uh, uh, market is very tight and we have no spare capacity because we are going to use that 6 million of spare capacity to compensate for that, what the US added. But the counter argument is, look, if it wasn't for the share revolution, Trump would not have, would not have imposed or reimposed sanctions on Iran and Trump would not have imposed sanctions on Venezuela. And both countries without sanctions or stiff sanctions would have added about 4 million. And with that, that means the current situation would have been, uh, we have 6 million of spare capacity uh, and, and uh, the Iranians are going to add, uh, with the Venezuelans are going to add four. So you subtract that from the spare capacity and we end up with about two, uh, 2 million barrels, which is the normal case in this case. So we end up with a normal market. But the idea here is you can see how sanctions, and that's one of the main points. You can see how sanctions and shale worked in this case. And we do have enough evidence to show that the only way the US was able to export condensates to Asia is to continue uh, sanctions on Iran 
and uh, turmoil in Libya when they had that blockade of the ports. And uh, let me ask a question here real quick. Um, so we have um, on this chart, you know, the U.S. is obviously kind of lapping the competition, but Canada and Iraq are, are, are you know, two and three or tied for two. It's kind of hard to tell exactly, but basically the same. Um, when you think of Canada, okay, we, we kind of understand from the U.S. perspective some of the problems there with, the, with their government. When you think of Iraq, from the American perspective, you don't think of a stable government that's going to produce an increase in oil production. You would, you would suspect it'd be closer to, you know, maybe Mexico with some of the theft problems or Iran, of course, and other sanction problems. Um, what has allowed the Iraqis to kind of thrive over the past decade? This is a great question because I have a whole section in this uh, project I'm working on on this. And in my uh, column that will be published tomorrow uh, in Arabic, basically, I discussed this point, point in particular. If you look around the world in the last 100 years, uh, the international companies operated in the harshest of areas around the world in terms of weather, whether it's the Arctic or whether the uh, hottest deserts on Earth like in southern Algeria, for example, or Libya, uh, to various places, to, uh, to the deep uh, offshore, etc. So they operated from uh, weather point of view uh, and climate point of view, they operated all over. From a political point of view, they operated in the most uh, contentious areas in the world, the most unstable areas in the world. They just named the countries. I mean, we, we talk from uh, Colombia historically, to uh, Nigeria, to uh, Yemen, uh, and other places. So politically, they have no problem, even in Libya today, for example, Iraq, um, they have no problem with political instability. They have no problems with insurgents. If you look at the Niger Delta, for example, uh, remember, there was a year, uh, the Lyman uh, pipeline in Colombia uh, was uh, uh, bombed uh, uh, like every two days for the whole year. So bombed like 150 times in one year. And yet the, the uh, Chevron and others basically continue to operate. So they have no problem with political instability. What they care about is the institutional framework work and the law that guarantee their rights. And what the US and its allies did in Iraq, the first thing is they wanted to, to, to do the constitution. If you remember, if you are, uh, old enough, of course, both of you are, are young. Uh, if you are old enough, you remember the fight over the constitution and how they created the constitution and they created various laws because they know that oil companies are not going to come back unless the constitution and the laws are in, in place. And then you have the structure of the government. So you need the institutional framework with the laws and then the issue of political instability is not a, a problem at all. Uh, uh, if you look at Southern Sudan, for example, historically, uh, we had uh, basically companies, literally, they have their own armies historically in Southern Sudan when Sudan, Southern Sudan and Sudan were united uh, uh, at that time. Uh, so they have no problem with political instability. They, they really need the institutional framework and the legal system that exists. And, and that's what enabled Iraq basically to increase, uh, to increase production. Uh, the final point basically is on the outlook and what we can uh, get out of this one here is uh, looking forward on the supply side, uh, the conclusion is most of the increase in the future, when I say the future, basically I'm looking at the next 30, 40 years, uh, most of the increase is going to come from the Gulf region, that Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, Iraq, and Iran. 
and North America, that's the United States and Canada, not, not Mexico. So most of the increase is going to come from there. The others basically are just noise. We might see something out of uh, offshore, mostly from Brazil. Uh, for Russia, I think is going to struggle keeping this production, even with the Arctic. Uh, uh, so it's very hard for, for, for me to see the Russians increasing production, given that some of, their oil some, some of their oil fields are the oldest uh, in the world. Uh, it is, if you look around, shale still have life to go. All we need just the right price. The same thing for, uh, for Canada. Canada problem is not the production. And it may not be the price as long as the price is above 45 or $50. It's really the pipelines as you all know. So once we solve the Canadian pipeline issues, Canada has no problem with uh, uh, growing. The China, it will, uh, will have serious problems increasing its production. The same thing for uh, uh, India, Norway, well, little bit, not much above what they have uh, uh, right now. Uh, so you look around the world and you look at it country by country, and you can see that the additions are going to come from the Gulf and North America. And I emphasized on those tweets on saying and instead of versus, because you rem remember, I, I, I did not have time to put that slide, the cover uh, of The Economist, which shows the Saudis versus shale or Sheikh versus shale cowboys. Uh, it's not really that way. And the reason why it's and not versus because the demand in the future is going to be higher than all expectations that exist out there today. And the reason why demand is going to be higher because the impact of climate change policies is highly exaggerated by everyone, whether the private sector or government or government organizations. And here I would like to emphasize something we mentioned on the show before. If you look at the outlook of the IEA, for example, or OPEC or others, any of those international organizations, they reflect the wishes and the plans of the countries. An analyst working for the IEA cannot come to a, to a country, to a member, and tell them, oh, by the way, I doubt that you can, you can deliver this. I doubt your policy will succeed. They cannot say that. They will get fired. Or probably they, they, they will get some note from their bosses or something. But the idea is they cannot. They have to take member countries, uh, whatever they send them, whatever policies they take them as is. And we know we have hundreds of books and articles, etc., talking about government policy failure for the last 120 years or so. So the idea here is that those, uh, uh, those outlooks are really optimistic regarding the impact uh, or the success of climate change policies. And therefore, demand is going to be higher, while the supply is going to be highly concentrated and not enough to meet that demand. And I'm talking here general picture. I haven't even sure. delved into the details and this stuff. The final point basically is ESG. ESG basically, I know some people are talking about decline in production because of the impact of it, et cetera, et cetera. No, what we are going to see is the big companies and companies that want to show that they care, they are going to dump certain assets. They see a risk in them to the ESG and others are going to buy them, whether they are the Chinese, or the Indians or any other country or any other company that does not care much about what those companies care about. So those assets basically will continue to produce uh, no matter what. 
The irony here is, and a lot of people do not know this, but this is kind of a fascinating part that companies are going to claim things that been there forever as part of ESG. And let's remember the Walmart example. When Walmart decided to be green, they hired the guy, put him vice president for sustainability or something. And uh, uh, he went in, studied thousands of stores, and he found out that Walmart was already green because of the skylights in the ceiling <laughs> of the store. It's, it's so, like Google has on their thing, you know, absolutely. since 2007. Like, okay, that's funny how that works. Absolutely. So companies are going to go back and, and, and look into what they have and all of a sudden say, oh, you know, we can already cover, let's say, 30, 40, 50, 70% of ESG from things that already exist, which literally has no impact on the climate or anything else. Just things are going to be counted like big windows, for example. And this is no joke. I mean, big windows are going to play uh, a role here. And as you know, I always mention uh, kind of uh, uh, private uh, stories on your show. So I will end with this story. Uh, when I was in Colorado teaching at Colorado School of Mines years ago, I wanted to buy a second car and I wanted an SUV. So I found an ad for a trooper. And I called uh, uh, and a lady answered and I told her I'm interested in the car, how I can see it. And I start asking her questions. And literally, literally the answer was like this. I asked the question, does it have an AC? Because in Colorado, we asked that question. Mm. And she said, literally, no, but it has windows. <laughs> <laughs> so that ESG right there. It's ESG. <laughs> <laughs> oh well i've got big windows at my house so i'm gonna I'm claim those um anas you are up against the clock so let me ask you this quick uh just a quick quick answer here um as i'm looking at this last chart and again folks go check us out on youtube um uh you know we, from what i understand you're saying u.s shell producers are in a good spot and then summarize a few things you said if chinese production continues to slough off or, or slow down that's good for u.s shell producers because china will have to buy more and they're a huge uh buyer of oil right now um venezuela and iran are kind of in a tough spot the one thing that this chart doesn't account for and i'm curious how you think about this especially from the u.s perspective is i don't want to say concern but what about the rise of african oil and gas because there's a lot of talk now about new discoveries putting focus there their oil and gas industry coming to maybe potentially be opec members um any thoughts on how that might impact the U.S. shale producers? Well, um, as you know, uh, in, in West Africa, especially a country like uh, 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 North and West Africa, a country like uh, uh, Libya or Algeria mm -hmm. or Nigeria, they produce light oil uh, that is similar to what uh, U.S. shale produces. Of course, there are some differences, but generally speaking, it's light oil and probably it's better than shale. And uh, uh, it ha they have a lot of condensates. So they will have an impact. The problem is, it is very clear in those countries for various reasons. If you look at Algeria, for example, they've been struggling with the production for about 20 years right now. If you look at Nigeria, I mean, they go up all of a sudden and then they drop all of a sudden. Uh, so if you are looking at consistent uh, numbers, it's very hard to see that coming out of uh, uh, Africa. 
one of the ironies, and I hope people will not misunderstand what I am saying. One of the ironies is some Canadian politicians historically were promoting uh, oil sand as, oh, uh, we are a democratic country unlike other countries in OPEC or in Africa. Well, that's funny because what they meant was, uh, and they said, we are politically stable relative to those countries and relative to the Middle East. That's a false argument because there are more interruptions in Canadian and Norwegian oil production due to labor strikes than any of those countries. And if you look at Libya under dictatorship of Gaddafi, they've been producing 1.6 million every single day for about 25 years straight. <laughs> no interruption. And who dared to go on a labor strike in Libya yeah. during that time? Okay. And so the, the issue is that, I mean, those Canadian politicians really showed their ignorance of the other areas. This is not a promotion of dictatorship, but the idea is in those countries to ensure steady supply, <laughs> it seems that steady supplies and dictatorship uh, go together. Otherwise you are going to have interruptions. And that's what we see in places like uh, Nigeria today. Okay, well, Anas, thank you again for this. Fantastic. Uh, everybody follow Anas on Twitter at Anas Alhaji, or that is his, his, the name of his website, uh, AnasAlhaji.com as well, I believe, right? Uh, yes. Also, yes. go ahead and quickly promote your um, Arabic um, Twitter. Uh, I, I, I don't, well, I, the, the, the whole idea here is I tweet a lot in Arabic, and I retweet from uh, uh, the only uh, Arabic energy-based website, which is called Ataha. Just make sure if you never ex experienced this, you will love it. Just click on the translate button on Twitter and it will translate the tweet. And if you go click the link, you can just go to Chrome or Explorer or any web browser you are using and just switch the language. And uh, the translation in the last two years improved substantially. For Twitter translation, it's amazing. So just click on translate and, and you'll love it. Awesome. Absolutely. All right, Anas, thank you so much. Appreciate your time as always, and uh, look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks. All right, Joshua, we got anything in the roundup, or is uh, is that it for the day? Uh, not much, Ryan. A couple of things. Uh, first is uh, there's a, a Wall Street Journal article. I'm just going to put it in the show notes. We don't have to go over it very much, but in the in the article. It mentions um, right now Biden is pushing for OPEC to increase production so that he can get the gas prices down. Uh, and uh, this article kind of goes over some of the politics that are involved because uh, obviously Biden can't be pro oil production here in this country because it would get him in a bunch of trouble with uh, with some folks on the left. So the, the the strange posturing that's going on. It's an interesting article that he's pushing for production uh, in OPEC but he's also calling for decreases in production on the U.S. side, uh, which just doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, so it's an interesting article there. And then uh, another article that I thought was interesting, Shell inks a five-year deal to supply PetroChina with carbon neutral LNG. Uh, there was a lot to really unpick, uh, unpack there. I'm curious though, Ryan, Carbon neutral LNG. I really wanted to to dive into that. Maybe we'll uh, we'll revisit that next week. That's a that's a interesting interesting. Yeah, concept. I think that's that blue. Is that the, is that the blue hydrogen stuff, or is that something I different? 
I think so, but I mean, I wonder how are they yeah. how are they classifying it's, carbon neutral? It's how okay. So Ellen and I covered this on Energy Week. I think it's how they they um. Oh gosh, it's how they uh not, not to put the atoms, but it's something to do with how they um. The words are escaping me right now. If you Google blue hydrogen, I think is the right term. And you talk about the process and because of that, it captures the it captures the carbon a certain way or what whatever. Mm. It has to do with how they how they um that's splitting the atoms, but that's that's the, that's the only term I'm, my brain's stuck. Splitting the atoms, we'll say that, but it's not that. It's it's something about um there's a there's a proper term that they have. I can't think of. And it. I, I'm guessing it would be more expensive, but China's buying a bunch of it, you know, for five years. Uh, so yeah, it, you would it, think so. So, but yeah, it's like um, a safe investment. Yeah. So if you go again, I'll uh, I'll try to look up. I think it's blue hydrogen hydrogen. I can't say the word now. Hydrogen or green hydrogen. I can't say hydrogen. Um, and I'll link to a, an article in the show notes. I cannot remember the proper term that they use, uh, but yes, that it's how it's how they're um, they're, they're um, there goes that process. So, anyways, all right, Josh. Well, listen, thank you for coming back. It's nice to see you at work again today. Um, and so, listeners, as always, thank you so much. And until next time, uh, keep smiling. <laughs>